appreciate they put me here in the service to give you a little break from up and down. Your rising and sitting has earned you Christmas dinner. Congratulations. You've done enough exercise to eat later, so good job. I hope your heart has been in tune with the truths presented and proclaimed, and that you, in your depth of being, have seen more of the glory of our God who sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If you've been tracking with our themes, they've moved us from Genesis past now the Gospels into the New Testament epistles, and we sit waiting for the fulfillment of these things, which we will read about or have read to us in a moment and sing about the fulfillment of our redemption. So I thought it appropriate to go to a text that is somewhere in the middle in the New Testament epistles in Romans 8, often called the Mount Everest of the New Testament, for it rises high above all other texts, as it seems, with glorious truth proclaimed of our assurance in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The chapter begins, and the chapter ends with what shall separate you from the love of Christ? Neither death, nor life, nor any other thing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is a glorious chapter. I want to park us for a few moments in the middle, Romans 8, verses 18 to 25, and set our focus on the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. We began our service this morning with a scripture reading from Genesis 3, which is the fall of man into sin the resulting curse upon man and all of creation. In that context of the fall of man, God speaks a word of promise. He says in verse 15 that there will come a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And this will happen by the crushing of his heel. He will have victory over the serpent. That gospel hope given right as the curse is given is given on the worst day in human history. There has not been a worse moment in mankind's existence than that moment when Adam and Eve turned from their creator, their maker, their God, and said, we will do it our way. In the midst of the curse that fell upon them, God spoke We responded to that scripture reading by singing two songs, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Both of those songs express so well what is at the heart of my sermon to you this morning. We sang this line, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fear and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope Of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. It's a song, as is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, of yearning and of longing, of unmet, unfulfilled expectation. It's a yearning born out of the suffering and the agony and the fear caused by sin. And it's a longing that is fueled by the promises of God. Those are the two ingredients of biblical hope. 
This is my point to you this morning. If you hear nothing else, hear this. That biblical hope is made up essentially of two ingredients. In Romans 8, we find a New Testament commentary on Genesis 3. This is the Holy Spirit's commentary on what happened at the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And we live in a Genesis 3 world. You do not need me to recount to you all the ways in which you feel the effects of the curse of sin in your life today. We live in a Genesis 3 world, and even now, some 6,000 years since Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, we know the agony, the suffering, the persistence of the curse upon our very head. And Romans 8 is an explanation of the hope that we can have in a Genesis 3 world. Romans 8 takes the Christian out from the valley of Genesis 3 and raises you to the Himalayas of gospel truth and lets you gaze down at all that is true when you can't see it down in the valley of Genesis 3 and shows you the glory of the promises of God that carry you along in hope. Friend, that is what we celebrate today. The coming of Jesus is a celebration of your only hope. He is everything. And if you have not faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have true hope. But if you have Him, if you are in Him, you have unending hope in God. Romans 8 verse 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope For what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Every one of us who are in the Lord this morning are groaning in hope. We are groaning in hope. There are two necessary elements to hope. If you have these two ingredients cooking in your heart, what will come out of the oven is hope. It is in the coming of Jesus to earth that we see these two elements meet and find their eventual fulfillment in him. Those two necessary elements of biblical hope are suffering and promise. Suffering and promise. If you're going to have biblical hope, you must have suffering and you must have promise. Now there are many other elements we could talk about in hope like waiting, unrealized expectations. That kind of fits with suffering. So I'm just going to go with with suffering and promise. We must groan under the agony of the present hour 
before we ever hope for something better yet to come. And there must be promises that fill our expectation of what is to come. So in the present agony, we must know that there's something better. Not just hoping that there's something better, not just planning for something better, but a guarantee from one who can make it happen that there is something better coming. So to have true hope, we must have suffering and have promise. By the nature of the case of hope, there must be unfixable problems. There must be unending trouble. There must be ongoing hardships which cause us to groan if hope is to exist. And there must be the glorious promise of God. Let's consider the first one of suffering. Hope requires suffering. Look at how this passage describes sufferings that we all face. Verse 18 presents the problem as persistent and ongoing. Paul says they're the sufferings of this present time, his and ours, and everyone in between and everyone to come. It's the sufferings of the present time. They just are always there. He doesn't really need to explain that to you. You just inherently know when you read that phrase that there are just hardships that mankind faces day in and day out. Disease, degeneration of the body as you age, mental, emotional, relational problems, tragedy and violence, wars and rumors of wars, political tension, oppression, injustice, corruption in every sphere of life, unending financial challenges, problems at work, at home, and in the world, and it goes on and on and on and on, right? You could fill every one of those categories I just mentioned with your own specifics that you uniquely carry with you in this moment as you sit in that pew. Burdened under the reality of a sin-cursed, devil-run kind of world. Groaning under the curse. This has been given all kinds of explanations and resulting solutions by man. This suffering of the present time. This is what drives so many of the, the political conversations in Topeka and in Washington. As men and women sit around boardroom tables and in backroom deals trying to come up with political solutions to the suffering of humanity from their perspective. This is the topic of conversation for philosophers in, in every generation. They, they try to sit in their ivory tower of wisdom and, and try to make sense of it all. Try to figure out why it is that there's so much difficulty and trouble and pain in the world and how should we rightly cope with it. One philosopher who you may have heard his name before, John Stuart Mill, looked at the ongoing suffering in the world and determined that the God of the Bible simply could not exist if suffering were the reality. In his skepticism, he looked at a a world around him and a God he heard was loving and all-powerful. And his conclusion was that if God is true and does exist and is loving and all-powerful, then a world like this would not exist. If he was loving, he wouldn't let it go on. If he was powerful, he would do something to take care of it. In his simplistic understanding of suffering, he concluded there must be no God at all. And that's just one sample of many of how humans have tried to explain the suffering that everyone, everyone faces every day. The reality of human suffering is also at the center of, 
of humanistic philosophies that try to give you a worldview that help you operate in the world. One of the main ones that's just easy to pick apart because it fits this so well is that of evolution, macroevolution. Pushed and refined by Charles Darwin and thousands of scientists and philosophers in his train since. The thought is that that macroevolution that holds the system together has at its heart an explanation for the suffering in the world. And in that system, suffering in the world is, is explained simply, simplistically I should say, as survival of the fittest. It's in process of getting better and the weak are getting weeded out by the process of evolution and things are evolving into stronger, better beings. And so the suffering is is explained by this ongoing change and the necessity of the change requires people to suffer, the weak to suffer as the strong get stronger and survive the test of time. Along with that in evolution is the idea of the reality that we're all just a clump of cells, it's all just biology. You're all just cells thrown together somehow, coming together in some cosmic explosion and yesteryear, and voila, there you are, some clump of cells existing and moving through life. And in this evolutionary theory of the clump of cells, you, you now, in your suffering, it really doesn't matter because you're just a clump of cells. It really doesn't have any significance beyond the moment of pain because you're just biology. You're just, you're just a fusion of chemistry and cell work coming into your existence. We don't have time for this, but I would argue that the evolutionary theory which sits at the heart of the worldview of so many in the West is also driving so much of the chaos, the violence, the pain, and the agony in the West. One obvious example of that would be our thoughts as a culture about abortion, taking the life of a human child in what should be the safest place on earth for that human child, their own mother's womb. We have justified that in our cultural psyche, being undergirded by a worldview that says it's just a clump of cells. And you are just trying to survive. And so if you need to survive by removing the clump of cells, then get rid of it and move on. This is how we perpetuate suffering with wrong worldviews. But notice that Paul in our text takes us to the plain truth of it all. He says the cause of all of the suffering is us. It's us. He says in verses 20 and 21 that all of creation was subjected to futility and now is in the bondage of corruption. You see, John Stuart Mill was missing a major piece to his puzzle, the key piece, and that key piece was the sinfulness of man. 20 and 21 tells us that God subdued creation under the curse. You remember in Genesis 1, when God made Adam and Eve, he gave them a mandate. He told them how they should now live in his new world. He says, go, multiply, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and and rule over it, subdue it. Subject it. Make it run in a way that honors me. Bring my order to it as my vice regents. That's the idea of Genesis 1 and the mandate. 
But you get to Genesis 3 and you find out that instead of doing it God's way, they wanted to do it their way. And instead of creation being subjected to the rule of God through man, creation instead was subjected to the rule of sin and its resulting curse. Corruption. Literally, the constant carrying apart of cells and of the very things that keep us together. That's corruption. Why is the world in such a mess? Why are things decaying and falling apart? Why do you constantly have to keep up with maintenance on your body and your house and your car and your family and your relationships and your pets and your property? Why do all of those things demand your constant attention? Because of our sin. We have corrupted the world. And so all of creation rise under the corruption of the curse. The suffering is constant and seemingly limitless. This creates then an eager expectation for something better. Paul tells us that in these verses that creation itself is longing for the day when it's out from under the curse. It groans under that corruption and waits for a day when it can know the good gifts of God again. Now, this seems like maybe an odd message on Christmas because you're especially aware of the goodness of God to you. You enjoy the good gifts of family and their generosity to you today. Of fellowship in your home. All the, all the wonderful things that come to you on a day like today. And you rejoice in those. But you must know that every one of those gifts is flawed and corrupted, right? None of those good gifts from our Lord are, are perfect or complete in fact, those things that we love and enjoy in this, in this world are often the very things that bring us hurt and pain and cause us to suffer. It's the things you hold closest to you that end up stabbing you the nearest to your heart. This eager expectation then is laid before us in Romans 8. This is an anticipation, literally a a craning of the neck, a rising up to look around the corner to see what is coming. That suffering creates an expectation. Consider now the promise. This expectation is fueled by the promise of God. Knowing that there is a better day coming. Hope is faith carried along by promise. Hope is the confidence that God will keep His Word and do as He has said. And our world looks for hope in all kinds of places. In fact, I'm old enough to remember when one of our presidential campaigns centered around the words hope and change. Hope in the world's eyes simply means that there's something we are striving for that we hope will come about if we push all the right buttons and pull all the right levers. If we just do this, 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 and this, then it will all be fine. That's a man-centered hope. There's better hope. There's a greater hope. An infinitely better hope spoken of in this text. In fact, I would argue this is one of the best texts to go to if you need hope. Because this text lays before you the truth of the matter. Well, what's the truth of the matter? What's the promise coming? Before I get to that, let me show you that there's a good analogy in this text used for hope. It's that of childbirth. 
Paul describes in our text the agony and the anticipation of creation. And he likens it to going through the pains of childbirth. And so a pregnant woman has a a different kind of hope of holding a baby in her arms than a, a small girl does who likes to play with her dolls. The small girl has a a hope of of someday marrying and having children of her own, but there's not much substance to that hope yet. There's not much there for her to actually grab onto other than what she wants to be true. But the pregnant woman is a different story. She feels the physical progress of pregnancy. She goes through the pains and the difficulties of giving birth. Her hope is on a a different level. She has the almost realized promise of a baby. In a similar way, and it's not perfectly similar, but in a similar way, creation groans in eager anticipation. Creation is pregnant with the promises of God. And one day, those pregnant promises are going to give birth to reality. And all of it will be better gloriously better than it currently is. Verse 19, what's the the content of those promises? Verse 19 says that the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20 says that there's hope given even when the curse was spoken. That's the promise of the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Verse 21 gives us the, the result of that promise and that all of creation will be free from the slavery to corruption through the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 23 speaks of the firstfruits of the Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit of Christ living in you who are in Christ. It's a down payment. The Spirit of God is a down payment on better things yet to come. Verse 23 speaks also of the, the fullness of our adoption as sons, namely the redemption of our body. So what's the, what's the synthesis of all of those promises? How do they all come together in one simple truth? Well, creation looks forward to the day when our redemption as sons of God is complete. When our adoption is brought to its fullness. Paul says when that happens, creation itself will be freed from the horrific curse that it suffered for thousands of years. What does that mean? the fullness of our adoption as sons of God. Well, if you are in Christ by grace through faith in Him, if you've been born again to a new and a living hope, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been spiritually adopted into His family. You've been been reborn as a child of God. You now are, are His son or His daughter. There's a glorious change at the moment of your salvation and you're standing before God. You're taken from the kingdom of darkness and sin and rebellion and judgment and condemnation and eternal death. You're taken from that kingdom at the moment of your salvation and you are gloriously transferred to the kingdom of light and peace with God and righteousness in Jesus Christ and eternal life. Never condemned again because you are in Christ. But that's all spiritually, correct? When that happened for you, did anything happen to you externally? Did your physical body change one iota? No, the process of decay 
continued on, didn't it? You got a little older, a little chubbier, a little slower, and in a little more pain. Right? Since the day of your conversion, that's probably how it's gone for you. If not, all of us want to talk to you afterwards. What is the hope here? The hope is that someday, even your external reality, your physical reality, will be gloriously changed and your adoption will be completed and you will be fully and finally and completely welcomed into the family of God. And you can know that isn't complete yet because you have the Spirit of Christ living in you. As he said earlier in the chapter, witnessing to your spirit that you are of God. Crying out for you, Abba, Father. If that's true in you, if you have a yearning for God, if you have a peace with God through His Son, witnessed to you by His Spirit, that's a down payment on you that He's not done with you yet. That this isn't it. Praise God, this is not it. As great as today is, as wonderful as your family is, as cool as your Christmas presents were or will be, if you haven't opened them yet. I'm sorry you haven't. Friend, it is getting gloriously better. There are eternal riches stored up for you in Christ beyond what you could ever imagine. This is the hope of the end of the end times. When Christ returns and brings all of these things to their completion, the Bible says eternal life will be ours, not just spiritually, but physically as well. We will know life and we will know it abundantly in Christ. And tied to our resurrection and our glorification is the removal of the curse on creation. Revelation 21 says it this way, you know this text, hear it with fresh ears. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Beloved, this is what waits you and me in Christ. Today is wonderful and glorious and enjoyable and painful. There are hard realities about today and every day for every one of us. And though you groan, I want to point you to the hope that informs your groaning. And so Paul says in verse 18 that he does not even consider the sufferings of this present age to stack up against the glories yet to be revealed. When you're carrying that 50-pound backpack on your backpacking journey, there's nothing heavier. But when you arrive at your glorious destination, drop your pack and enjoy the beauty of the summit, you forget all about your aching shoulders 
because you're enraptured with what is around you. That is a small glimpse of the glory that will come. As you bear along patiently under the weight of a sin-cursed world. Someday. Someday. Glory will be revealed in Christ. Praise God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you for the sufferings of this present age that loosen our grip on here and now stuff and make us think and hope and long for the coming glory that it will be ours in your son. So Lord, on this day, when we remember your son's first coming, would you point us ahead to his soon second coming? And would you fill us with this expectant hope and help us to wait patiently for your appointed hour Make us faithful until that day. And then, Lord, allow us the joy soon of being forever with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 22.20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Please stand. <clears throat> sing we now of Christmas, so well sing we praises to the babe so dear. Sing we Noel, the King is born Noel. Sing we now of Christmas, sing we now Noel. Angels call to shepherds, lead your flocks at rest. Journey forth to Bethlehem, 
Oh 
Thank you so much for being with us this morning to worship our Lord on this wonderful Lord's Day. I hope you have a great Christmas celebrating with your family, rejoicing in all that God has given to you, being reminded that this first coming points you to yet what awaits us, his glorious second coming. I want to thank our musicians. They have done a ton of work to prepare for and to lead us in worship today. So thank you to each of them for all the labor they put forward for today. As we close on our hearts is what was on Paul's mind when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. God's grace to you. You're dismissed. Merry Christmas.